Hebrews 2020, Increment 208, Part 2 of a two-part series called A Better Hope for Generations to Come. A little more on the prophetic bent, if by prophecy we mean the speaking forth of the word for the level of our own time, as well as maybe a hint or two for the future or at least an encouragement about the future. And so, Father, we pray that you'll convey hope, the hope of the gospel, by means of this increment. And we know that that hope is embodied in Jesus, who is reality itself, and reality himself. In his name, amen. First, a quote from the Hebrews author. In fact, just a small snippet from Hebrews 7.19, the introduction of a better hope, Cretonos Elpidos. Second, a quote from Jürgen Moltmann, history itself is nothing other than permanent crisis. History itself is nothing other than permanent crisis. Now, when we say things like, I hope 2022 is better than the year 2021, or we say things like, wow, 2021 was even worse than 2020, we need to remember Moltmann's maxim, history itself is nothing other than a permanent crisis. In 1 Corinthians 7.26, Paul spoke of, quote, a time of distress, close quote. Though history can be viewed as a continuing crisis, and it can in one sense, it has its times of particular distress within this epoch's long crisis. The world finds itself in such a time right now. Jesus, the Son of Man, speaks of times like this as times that test the whole world. Like Revelation 3.10, in which we need the perseverance of Christ, the word of his perseverance. The word for present in the phrase, this present distress in 1 Corinthians 7.26, can also have the sense of impending distress. It's very possible that we are not only in a time of particular distress in the crisis of history, but that there is also an impending distress that may be unforeseen in 2022 and 2023 and beyond. When I initially wrote these words, and this, I began this message several weeks ago, maybe even a couple months ago. When I initially wrote these words, I had not foreseen the horrific events in Ukraine that are ongoing now as I speak. And I'm speaking today on March the 8th, I believe. Above and beyond the culpability of China and its complicity with others in our own nation and elsewhere, and their collusion with evil in heavenly places, for the unleashing of a deadly virus on the world, 
and this culpability is real, is the judgment of God above and beyond that. Above and beyond the culpability and the culpably evil dictatorship of Vladimir Putin and his unprovoked and horrific attack against Ukraine and especially the murderous assault on its innocent non-combatants, above and beyond all that is the judgment of God which Putin may be well overlooking. Evidently, he's getting some support, perhaps his most powerful support from a religious figure in Russia who harbors and encourages similar nationalist imperial designs. This is another example of the illicit and idolatrous marriage of pseudo-religiosity with political ambition and power lust. Now we've spoken forcefully of the reality that God's justice is saving justice. It's with this message that we kicked off the year 2022. However, in the enactment of God's saving justice, it is necessary that evil and destructive forces and agents are dealt with and removed. God deposes kings and he establishes kings according to Daniel 2.21. To save a nation, or even a civilization, God sometimes moves and acts to undo the kind of things that lead to death instead of life. God cannot and does not tolerate a so-called civilized nation if that nation actually has laws that endanger the innocent. God, who gives life to all in 1 Timothy 6.13, does not and will not approve of legislation that endangers the unborn or laws that foster inequity in the name of equity, so-called. In such a nation, the prophet Isaiah was correct to say, Truth has stumbled in the public square, and equity cannot enter. So strange in a day when people talk about equity is a day in which true equity can't find an entry. The law of the cross, and thank God for it, and I do every day, in one way or another, ensures that all the evils of the human race will be converted into the supreme good. For some, this law is enacted even in this evil age. Think of Paul, think of countless others. For others, the law of the cross will be enacted in future world. Now while a fundamentalist preacher may get on TV and speak of Putin in hell, because according to fundamentalists all bad people go there, in the future age. He speaks of Putin in hell in the future age. The word of the cross speaks instead of his utter demolition during a divine action of transformation, transforming even him as well as even you and me and that fundy preacher into a supreme good.
an action that can only be realized by joining him and everyone else to Christ. The fundamentalist may say that Jesus is Lord and say it with all the distinctions of piety. But does he recognize that Jesus is Lord of all? including those who don't believe or in any way act as if he is. Jesus is Lord, even of Putin, of Xi, Xi, however you say, X-I, and of President Biden, and of you and me. The preachers of the so-called Lordship Gospel, we had our tussle with them in the past century, who equate personal salvation with one's practical submission to Jesus as Lord. If you don't submit every area of your life to him as Lord, you're not really saved, they say. These preachers of the so-called lordship gospel who equate personal salvation with one's practical submission to Jesus as Lord may even say, and I think they did as a quaint little slogan, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Meaning that if every area of one's life is not in total submission to Jesus as Lord, which is dangerously close to being sinless, then Jesus is not that person's Lord at all. A quaint slogan, but ridiculous, and at its core blasphemous. It might be better to simply say that Jesus is Lord of all. Whether there are persons or other beings submitted to his lordship or not. And as of now, there are quite a few. Quaint slogans do not a gospel make. In the days of his flesh, Jesus spoke of an impending catastrophe. He spoke to the religious leaders of his time and called them missionaries who make their proselytes twice the children of Gehenna as you are. Matthew twenty-three fifteen, The justice of God and the love of God, the mercy and the faithfulness of God could not tolerate a religious system that dealt death instead of life. God moves to judge in order to save. Even in historical judgments that involve great destruction, the divine aim is salvation and life for victims and for oppressors. The victims need justice. The oppressors need righteousness. And we all need righteousness and saving justice. Jesus said to the same religious leaders who were missionaries of Gehenna that he spoke these and other things to them, quote, in order that you would be saved, John 5, 34. He said that to people who were intending and even planning and plotting to kill him in John 5, 18. The cataclysmic judgment of God on the Jerusalem of the second temple a temple that was fabulously refurbished by King Herod. That was a judgment on a death-dealing entity so that life would result. 
It was a judgment preceded by more than ample warning by the prophet Messiah of Israel and by his apostles and Christian prophets. It was a judgment that will only be brought to completion when Jesus comes again with his name, Yahweh, when he is rightly called Yahweh by every tongue, including the tongues of the population of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. When Christ appears a second time, it will be with salvation, Hebrews 9.28, for the inhabitants of old Jerusalem, even those who cried crucify him, as well as for all of humanity. For his prophetic word to the Jerusalem of the second temple is, quote, you'll never see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes with the name Lord, which is Yahweh, Matthew 23, 39. It's very clear that old Jerusalem is to be transformed into the supreme good, therefore, in future world. It is very clear that old Jerusalem is to be transformed into the supreme good that is named the New Jerusalem, the city of our great king. She has already been transformed in future world. She will come down from heaven and is seen doing that by John the Revelator, as he's called. The same Jesus who was expelled from old Jerusalem as one not worthy of being in her environs and brutally crucified outside her gate is the great king in the new and heavenly Jerusalem and the Lamb of God who took away even the sin of his expulsion and murder. For even though no one took his life from him but he laid it down, there was nevertheless a murderous intent in delivering him to the cross. Men may well have intended the death of Jesus for evil, but God intended it for good, in fact, for the supreme good of all. The most egregious and unthinkable evil ever perpetrated in human history, the murder of the author of life. Think of that in Acts 3.15, for which all of us as sinners are culpable, was intended by God for the most incalculable and incomprehensible, even universal good. For God intended the cross as much as men did, as passionately as men did, but for an entirely different purpose from that of men, a purpose as high as the heavens are above the earth. The author of life, for so Jesus is called, rightly. Though put to death by men controlled by sin, became the author of eternal salvation by that same death, and is secure, he secured eternal redemption by his own blood. But this act did not prevent the time and space judgment that needed to fall on Jerusalem of old and its Herod refurbished temple because Jerusalem and its vaunted temple had become a power for death and not for life. So very often that which is highly venerated by men is an abomination to God.
in times of social and economic decline, in pandemics, wars, famine, natural and economic disasters, and other historical setbacks. Some of the optimists in the new public square of social, political, and news media prophesy that, quote, America will bounce back again like she always does. And the reason for that is, after all, they say, this is the greatest nation that ever existed on the face of the earth. But there's a real danger of idolatry in those words. In fact, the United States of Israel, under the rule of the shepherd King David, could be put forth as a rival of America in terms of true greatness, though it might be a David and Goliath battle. So could the first part of the reign of Solomon, the kingdom that David left him until Solomon's heart was divided. And so could the reigns of certain other Jewish kings who, quote, did what was right in the Lord's eyes. Did what was right in the Lord's eyes. 1 Kings 15, 11, 22, 43, 2 Kings 12, 3, 15, 3, 2 Kings 22, 2, 2, for example. As for America, the off-sung song goes... And this lyric rings true. God shed his grace on thee. And that's more like it. America's greatness, so-called, is the product of God's grace. The grace of God. And any and all true human greatness or goodness is the product of divine grace. You could call that a thesis if you want. Any and all true human greatness or goodness is the product of divine grace. One of the old-time translations of Psalm 18, David said, Thy gentleness, meaning your grace, has made me great. The failure to acknowledge this belongs to a warped kind of nationalism, one that lacks humility, one in which some event may topple it, one in which some even tend to link America with the indestructible kingdom of God, equating the value of the stars and stripes with the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is idolatry. America is not indestructible. The kingdom of God is indestructible. America will prevail again if America exists as a power for life and not for death in the world. And a lot of that will have to do with the church within America offering a much better hope than it has offered yet to the world. From the larger perspective of eschatology, history really is a permanent crisis, though I would qualify the word permanent. I would say rather 
history is an ongoing crisis for certain. But that crisis will end with the event called the parousia of Christ when Christ appears a second time with salvation. The same Christ who now, even now, knocks at the door of the individual and the church seeking entry in order to dine with us, which is the intimacy of fellowship and even the intimacy of union. But he will bring about the liberation of an embattled and weary waiting creation and the conversion of all the evils of the human race into the supreme good. The ongoing crisis, therefore, that we call history has within it many seasons of particularly escalated distress. In times of escalated distress, we need elevating grace. Don't make that into a slogan, please. Both history in the macrocosmic sense, as well as limited periods of intensified distress, may be described by the Greek word agona. In this present agona, which may be the signal of a greater impending period of distress in the world. We who are of the Christian community, a community of faith, are called to look unto Jesus and to see Jesus, who is presently and forevermore crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of an incomprehensible travail to give birth to such a great salvation and such a wonderful new creation. The salvation of all humankind, in fact, of every human being, personal and national, even worldwide consequences of rejecting or neglecting such a great salvation are real. They are experienced within history and also at the extreme bound of history in the day of evaluation. But they do not and cannot entail the loss of salvation itself. The loss of salvation is an absurdity, especially if we recognize that Jesus is salvation. Our so great salvation in Hebrews 2.3 and the salvation of all mankind in Titus 2.11 is embodied in him, our great archpriest. It should be remembered that the law of sowing and reaping is still powerfully operational in this age. God, though the God of all grace and the God of love and of hope and of peace, is not mocked, Galatians 6, 7 as if these qualities of his offer an excuse to turn the grace of God into something without sanctifying intent and effect, or to use the freedom that comes through Christ as a cover for evil, 1 Peter 2.16. With God's grace and with freedom, it's also true that if a person or a church or a nation which sows to the flesh, it will, from the flesh, reap a harvest of misery and corruption. Galatians 6, 7. If a person or a nation sows to the wind, 
It will reap the whirlwind. Hosea 8, 7. And the whirlwind may include famine. I can't even imagine a famine in a country where the most popular network is the food network. How will they handle it? And may God prevent such a thing. And he will if we humble ourselves before him and allow him to raise us up. And if we receive repentance and a change of priorities and call upon his name, the name of him who is rich to all who call upon him, Second Chronicles 7.14, Romans 10.12. Hosea 8.7 in its totality says this, Indeed they sow to the wind and reap the whirlwind. There is no standing grain. What sprouts fails to yield flour. Even if they did, foreigners would swallow it up. That verse should be meditated upon and given its many applications on the level of our time. Thanks be to God. There is a saving grace even in this. For as we've seen in increments 148 and 149, which it might be profitable to review sometime, there are those who sow to the Spirit as well and who reap a harvest of life unto eternal life. Galatians 6.8 In the God-breathed words of the prophet Hosea, a prominent source of our understanding of the philanthropy and pathos of God, they, quote, sow saving justice for themselves and reap according to grace. Hosea 10.12 By so sowing, get that, by so sowing, they sometimes stave off the deleterious effects of those who insist on sowing to the flesh. We've all done both. It'd be nice to incline towards sowing to the spirit. Above all, there's even the even more powerful grace of reaping where we have not sown. Used kind of harshly and dramatically, parabolically in Matthew 25, 26, the principle becomes wonderful in another light. By that I mean that we will all reap from the seed that God has sown in the earth. We didn't sow that, but we reap from it. The seed who is our Lord Jesus Christ who died and was buried, who arose and bore much fruit. John twelve twenty four. That much fruit is the salvation of all of humanity and all of creation. And of this produce there will be no famine, not now, not ever. Though God allows the judgment that may simply be the natural law of sowing and reaping during the course of this present age, this ultimate sowing and reaping by God always remains the immutable reality, the reality that is Jesus. Even though we have such a great salvation, the urgent call for us today is to submit to the Father of spirits and live. Hebrews 
Before an intensified interval of distress, there may, may be a, a respite, a time to humble ourselves, repent, receive a change of priorities, and to seek the Lord. Read Jeremiah 29, 13, Jeremiah 50 and verse 4, Hosea 3, 5, 5, 15, and Hosea 10, 12 again. Amos 5, 4, Zephaniah 2, 3. To seek the Lord. To choose life and blessing for ourselves and our descendants, the coming generations in Deuteronomy 30, 19. All of life is a valley of preparation to meet our God. Amos 4.12 And every moment in this life is an opportunity to choose life, the spiritual life that is lived, quote, with God-given sincerity and purity, not by fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. What a verse, 2 Corinthians 1.12. I think long ago I did a series of messages on that one verse and it certainly wasn't even nearly enough to do it justice. We are representatives of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20 We are also a kingdom of priests in Revelation 1.5-6 to God our Father. As such we intercede by prayer for all people. For all people. So pray and don't faint. Don't give up and don't say prayer is not enough or prayer isn't effective. For we are priests as well as ambassadors of Christ. Above all, we require an ongoing occupation with our great archpriest, who's also the great shepherd of the sheep. Now consider 1 Timothy 2.1 in a light that maybe you haven't considered it before. First of all, then, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all human beings. Panton, anthropon. Commenting on this verse, the theologian Ethelbert Stauffer wrote this, quote, the pathos of such intercession is rooted in the conviction Christ has given his life for a ransom not only anti-polon for many, but huper panton for all. Then, as if for our particular edification, Stauffer added in parentheses, so Hebrews 2.9 and 1 Timothy 2.6, two verses well worth juxtaposing, I would say. Here I need to reiterate a thesis that I've hit a couple times as this year turned to 2022. At the center of history is the great crisis of the cross. The cross, which is really a code word and better said, Jesus Christ and him having been crucified, is the sun, S-U-N, of history. And the rest of history, before and after, beneath and above, is its corona. Eventually, all the evils of the human race will be converted into a supreme good
by the law and the power of that cross. That's what I call UICC for short, the universal impact of the cross of Christ. It's a saving impact, a rectifying impact, a reconciling impact, a restorative impact, even as we're learning a deifying impact. Because hope is that by which we draw near to God, a complete hope is that by which we draw near to him completely and therefore worship him authentically. As the Bible says, and as Jesus himself said, in spirit and in truth, which means in essence and in reality. John 4.23, the time is now, and I've said this before, no doubt we'll at least say it a time or two in the future if the Lord gives me that opportunity. The time is now that God wants perfect worshipers. God wants perfect worshipers, not perfect people. God knows our constitution as human beings, and he knows our weakness and our frailties. Those self-righteous people and eyes wide shut ideologues may expect their own ideal of moral perfection and absolute correctness. God doesn't. Thank God. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14 says this, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows what we are made of, (coughs) remembering that we are but dust. Jesus, the Lord himself, recognized this in his own disciples who slept through his ordeal in Gethsemane. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The perfection of which the New Testament speaks has to do with perfection in love which is a product of grace, of course. 1 John 2, 5, 4, 17, and 18. It has to do with perfection in worship, Hebrews 10, 1. Perfection in worship goes hand in hand with perfection in love. The love that we have for God is distinct from the love that we have for all of humanity and for one another, Inasmuch as our love for God is a worshipful love, Deuteronomy 6.5, Revelation 22.9. Perfect worship occurs only when there's no more misdirected worship left in us, no idolatry left in our hearts, minds, and souls. It also occurs when the conscience is thoroughly purged of the evil of guilt and sometimes of the evil of a false burden of responsibility by which people become God players. We're not handing out excuses here. I'm certainly not doling them out like tickets. Perfection in love and perfection in worship actually result in and go hand-to-hand with moral integrity ethical correctness, correctness in discernment. In God's eyes, correctness of discernment is called eistasis in Philippians 1.9. 
It's one of the two river banks, the other being epignosis, that are on either side of agape and increasing love. The kind of perfection or completion that the Hebrews author is talking about is not primarily or even secondarily about moral development, but rather of becoming perfect in the heart's vocation of worship. True worshipers are not perfect people. In fact, the word often translated godliness, eusebia in Greek, has more to do with rightly directed worship than moral rectitude. Asabia, or ungodliness, asabia, which is the opposite of eusebia, is rooted in wrongly directed worship or idolatry. It's impossible, for example, to have moral integrity and believe in a godless, Christless, hopeless, tormenting hell in which people are thrown to be tormented forever. In fact, it's impossible to be psychologically right and believe that. Say nothing of morally integrated. When the heart, mind, and soul are rightly directed toward the one and true God, in worship, then one is living godly in this world. In Titus 2.11, Paul writes, The grace of God has appeared, salvation for all of humanity. In Titus 2.12, immediately following, he goes on to say that the same grace that teaches salvation for all trains us to deny all ungodliness, and this worldly cravings, and to live sensibly, justly, and godly in this present age. The Bible surely urges us to live sensibly and justly. Don't ever get the wrong idea. It certainly does. The scriptures and the Holy Spirit surely move us towards spiritual maturity. Hebrews 6.1 is a stunning example of that, as well as Philippians 3.13. And 14. The Holy Spirit works in us toward holiness and spiritual integrity. Read 1 Thessalonians 4, first eight verses if you don't believe that. But he does so by pouring out in our hearts the love of God, the gift of God's own love, God's gift of his own love. Romans 5 5. The spirit of grace in Hebrews 10.29 and of truth in, first, in John rather 6.13 glorifies Jesus. The spirit of truth glorifies Jesus. John 6.14 And he directs our attention to him and to the worship of the true God. A sensible and just and morally upright life and livingness is the result of denying ungodliness, the impiety that's rooted in idolatry wrongly directed worship and we should begin to think of people not damned for their sins and committing sin only but of what Galatians calls being overtaken by it have some compassion on someone who has sinned they've been overtaken by it maybe they struggled against it with everything in them but then they were overtaken by it have some compassion have some grace have some kindness because the Bible speaks of those who are mature as being 
restorative of those who have been overcome by a fault or a sin in Galatians 6, 1 to 2. And that the ones who restore should not, should be careful of being tempted because they might be tempted to think that there's something better than the one they're restoring or that they're somehow incapable of that kind of sin that overtook them. What kind of sin has overtaken you is the damn sin of self-righteousness. If, in fact, you are among those who think that you are above sinning like that guy, like that guy. Who is justified? The man who prayed in the temple with himself. These guys like to pray with themselves. Who said, I thank God I'm not like other men, like this publican over here. Not even knowing that that publican over there was saying to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need your propitiation. I need your mercy. That guy went home justified. Meaning justified in his prayer. The other guy, well, he's just another self-righteous bastard. I didn't intend to take that little side trip, but every good motorcycle deserves a nice sidecar. Godly living, even in this present evil age, is possible only by grace and only by perfection in worship. Only when all objects of misdirected worship are renounced and put away, including the worship of your self-righteous self and mine, are worshipers perfected. Perfected worship is only possible when the heart, mind, and soul recognizes the perfection of Jesus and the completion of his once and for all and forever sacrifice by which he removed sin itself by becoming sin. Thus, although the perfecting of believers does not involve a moral development, let me quote instead Peterson, David Peterson, from Hebrews and Perfection, as we wind to a close. He wrote this in his very excellent book called Hebrews and Perfection. Thus, although the perfecting of believers does not involve a moral development in our writer's perspective, it has its proper outworking in a life of obedience to God's will and perseverance in hope. The cleansing of the conscience leads to a decisive change in a person's heart with regard to God and enables that person to serve God as he requires. So I'll close this two-part prophetic series of increments by saying, let's persevere in hope. We have need of such perseverance, and it's ours in Jesus. As we do, we will be empowered to hold forth the word of life and to offer a better hope than that which has usually been offered by the church. Let this be so, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.